All right, good evening, everybody. We're going to be in Romans chapter... I was just waiting for you to come across. Romans chapter 3 tonight, if you want to turn near your Bibles, Romans 3. As Paul masterfully writes this Romans book, unlike myself, I kind of have random thoughts and I just kind of spout them out. Um, Last Sunday was a little little random at times, and that's just how my mind works sometimes, and it's, that's why I didn't get to write any of the Bible. God said, no, you don't get to write any of the Bible, because Paul thinks it through, and he knows what he wants to say, and he knows where he's starting, and he knows where he's ending, and he knows what he needs to say in between to get you to where he is, and that is his goal here. That's God's goal. It's God's heart. It's the Holy Spirit's heart, is I know where you start, I know where you are, and I'll pick you up wherever you are. I'll start wherever you are. But everybody needs to understand that where our ending point is, and that's to be like Christ, to be like Jesus. And he writes the Bible in such a way that he takes us there. He's a good teacher. He's an excellent rabbi. He's a wonderful um, professor of spiritual things, our God is. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need when we need it. Um, He knows what to keep us from, what's going to hinder our growth, our education, And uh, so as Paul writes this Romans, chapter 3 is just the next step. We started off with, yeah, those dirty, rotten sinners in chapter 1. Chapter 2 said, and everybody who said those dirty, rotten sinners, you know you're one of them too, right? And so he got us all. And then in chapter 3 here, he, uh, he continues on with that same thought. The Hebrews might have felt left... Um, I don't know, abandoned in chapter 2 when he said there's really no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And that was, of course, offensive to them, which it was any time we're confronted with something we believe to be true, um, but God says otherwise by his Holy Spirit. It is, if we're not humble, hard to take. It's hard to take when there's pride in the way. And so chapter 3, although he softens the blow, he does stick the dagger in a little further in this chapter. He says in verse 1, What advantage then has the Jew? He knows what they're thinking. Or what is the profit of circumcision? What's the point of all of it? What, what difference does it make? So God chose us as a nation. He had to circumcise ourselves to show our allegiance to him, our devotion to him, our submission to him. And you've just said none of that matters anymore, so what was the point of all of that? You know, We're no different. It's like the whole Israeli thing was just wiped out in their minds. Well, it needed to be, in a way, because they had elevated it to such a point beyond what God had wanted them to have. I chose you not because you were mighty, not because you were great, not because you were better. I chose you because I wanted to have an example on earth. I chose you that all the nations might see my relationship with you, my goodness towards you, despite your rebellion towards me, and they would desire that. You were just a witness. You were a testimony, which is all we still are to this day. Anybody that follows the Lord, anybody that saw it, he didn't pick any of us because we were mighty or because we were better or because we were special. He picked us because he wanted a witness that the world might see how good he is towards us, despite our walk, 
at times, hopefully not all the time, but at times, and that they might desire that same God. I want a God that's going to be like, like that, like I see him towards you when you're a creep and he still is gracious to you. When I'm a creep, I want him to be gracious to me. That's the idea behind it. I want a forgiving, gracious, merciful God. God says, that's who I am, and I'd love to show you who I am, and I know you need to see it before you believe it. So let me show you in my witnesses. And that's what we are. We're witnesses. He's never called us to go witnessing, honestly. Never in the Bible does it ever say, I want you to go stand in the street corner and witness to people and stop them on them, hand them tracks and tell them all this. It's all good to do that, don't get me wrong, but he's never called us to that. He's called us to be his witness. Just by my very existence with a relationship with Jesus, I am a track. I'm a living epistle that people can read. That's what I'm here for. That's what you're here for. We're all here for that. Now, along with that, you may go out and share Jesus with other people and talk to them about their sin and engage in conversation. That's all part of it, you bet. But to be a witness of Christ is not, isn't that. Don't let that definition replace the true definition of your life being a witness to those around you and to those you encounter. So what advantage is it? He says, much in every way. Now he says that, and he only names one thing. Chiefly because to them, the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. You guys got to be the librarians of the word of God. That's a big deal. It's been entrusted to you to carry God's word. To make sure when you copy it down on the next scroll that it's just like it was copied last time. It's very important. It's very good. I mean, what an honor to be able to do that, you know. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Some don't believe. That doesn't mean God's not real. God's reality is not dependent upon believing in him. There's a lot of things that people don't believe. There's some people here that still think the moon landing was faked. It doesn't mean that we didn't go. It doesn't mean that we don't have actual footage and moon rocks and all that. It doesn't mean that it wasn't true. It just means they're wrong. Some people believe the world's still flat. Really, there are out there. Google it. It's an interesting crowd. They wear triangles on their heads, I think, and sit in the desert with foil (laughs) so that we can't read their minds. I'm just saying. (laughs) They're not the most stable crew. But it doesn't mean that the world is flat, obviously. And so Paul is just simply saying, Look, just because not everybody believes doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. I mean, that goes without saying. you taking it to the marriage because you're talking about faithfulness, you're talking about the bride, and you're talking about you know, the husband, uh, Christ. It, it, it doesn't make Christ an adulterer just because you're an adulterer, just because you're faithless and you're not faithful to your husband, Jesus Christ, doesn't make him an adulterer also. means him, he's a victim, obviously, of it, but it doesn't make him faithless. And so that's the idea behind that. You, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? No, of course not. 
just because the nation of Israel didn't obey everything they were supposed to obey, does that mean that the world didn't see God's goodness, that they didn't see his graciousness or didn't see his mercifulness? He's taking us down a road here, just so you know. Well, of course not. Our, our sin led him or allowed him to show his grace and his mercy. You're never going to see mercy or grace unless the person isn't deserving of something or doesn't sin. So God's that beautiful side of God that everybody loves, his grace and his mercy, was, was only shown through their disobedience. Otherwise, you would have never seen it. It would have been deserved. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's on our older kids' classroom there. God, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. They're learning about that now. It's perfect. God's riches at Christ's expense because we haven't earned it. It's unearned favor with God. And so all Paul's saying is that just because they weren't faithful doesn't mean that he was faithless. And, and so he takes us to the next step. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, our unrighteousness, excuse me, demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? What he's getting at is just what I said, the thought process of the person, this, this straw man that Paul's put up as the argument goes on with himself. You're wondering, to your, you're asking, what good is it to be a Jew? And I'm telling you much in every way, and he tells us the one way we get to, they get to hold the word of God. And your next thought might be, and that's his next thought on the matter, or their next thought on the matter, is then if our unrighteousness made God look more righteous, then we should be more unrighteous? To make him look better? Because, I mean, a black spot on a white piece of paper only looks like a black spot because it's on a white piece of paper, right? So if it was a black piece of paper with a black spot on it, who'd have noticed? So you can thank me, God, for making you looking good, you know? I like you look. That's horrible thought. And that's what Paul says. Are you, really? C- certainly not. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? In other words, if that's true, if your thought that your unrighteousness makes God's righteousness look really good, then he can't judge you because all you do is make him look good. So what you're doing is a good thing, kind of in a weird way. Certainly not. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Let's take it to its... Logical conclusion, which most people don't do with theology, their own theology, their own thoughts that they come up with. They don't take it to its logical conclusion. They don't go all the way. If what you're saying is true, then let's take it to its logical conclusion. Then we should sin more down here. We should sin more. As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Their condemnation is just. If we truly taught that, some people are saying, Paul says, that we teach that. Sin, sin, sin. God looks great, great, great. We should sin. You know, I'm the cheerleader of sin is what they're teaching. No, that's absolutely not true. And if that were true, they would be right in condemning us. I'd be absolutely fair of them to say that about me. He says that's not true. Now, here's the thing with that. Paul never taught people to sin to make God look great, although he did teach grace and forgiveness that was freely offered by our God to us, which caused them to think that he was teaching sin more. Now I bring that up because I want that accusation against me. 
as a believer and as a pastor. I want people to say funny things about me around the community saying, all he talks about is grace and forgiveness and free this. He, he's just letting his people sin. He's telling them to sin and go all that. I want that said. I want to be accused of that. If Paul was accused of that because he taught about grace and forgiveness so much, that's the accusation I want against myself. I don't want anybody to ever look at us and say, now there's a good legalistic church right over there. There's a nice church over there that beats those sheep on a regular basis. And make sure they never feel free from guilt. I like that. Never. That cardinal, or that poor red bird. Sorry, there's a red, here's that random thought. That's why I don't write the Bible. He just sees his reflection and he just starts fighting himself right over here. He sits over, he does it every year. He sits on that branch out there where the nest is, the female's behind him, and this male just thinks he is the stud of the earth defending his wife out there. And he just bats himself against that glass. So if you hear something to your left, I'm sorry. You probably would have never noticed if I hadn't stopped and said anything, but it's hard for me not to see it. Okay, back to the Word of God. <laughs> I want that. I want to be accused of that. Oh, that church, that Calvary. All they do is talk about grace and forgiveness. I'll take that. That's a good thing to be accused of. Now, verse 9. What then? Paul's just having this wonderful conversation. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Remember the first two chapters? I thought we'd established that already. Everybody's under sin, singular. We all have a sin nature. We may sin in different ways. Those are our sins. But they're all, all of us, Gentiles and Jews, are all under sin. We have a sin nature. That's why that one singular sin nature is taken care of by that one singular act of grace at the cross, that forgiveness can be given. I'll elaborate on that in a minute. What then? Are we better? No, we're not better. I, I thought we'd establish that. All Jews and Greeks, they're all under sin as it is written, and so he quotes, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Some would argue with that. They, I'll fix that in a minute. There is, not fix his word, don't misunderstand. <laughs> I'm not going to fix the Bible, but I will do away with that myth that no one seeks after God, or that people say that, well, I try to seek after God, and I never find him. Eh, you're a liar. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's what's written, Paul says. That's written. That's in the scripture. That means you're not righteous, Mr. Jewish person. And that means you're not righteous, Mr. Greek person. That means that we're all under the same condemnation, under the same guilt of our sin. The fact that people would say, I've climbed the highest mountain, I've swam the deepest sea to find God in search of God. That's what all the other religions do, walking on the hot coals, walking on the, laying on the bed of nails, getting into strange positions until your body can't take it anymore, thinking that you're going to get there. I'm going to reach that one God. Warrior position. I'm going to get there. I'm going to reach that Hindu nirvana that I've been hoping for. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. See, God says something different in this word. God says in Jeremiah 23 that I'm in 23, 23 that I'm very near to you. I'm very near to you. God isn't difficult to find. God isn't under anything. He's not behind anything. He's not across anything. He's not above anything. He's 
in your, he's right there. He's that near. That's why James says, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. There is no searching or hunting for him. He's right there. And so anybody that says that they've climbed the highest mountain, swam the deepest sea, and they've, they've finally found that uh, staring at their navel on the top of a mountain and they've found God, that, that's not true. What they have is they bypass the true and living God who was right next to them. And they've gone searching for someone better, someone different. And what they've found is themselves. And they begin to worship themselves. Anything, any kind of searching for God that ends up you bypassing the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, bypassing the word of God that states, I'm right there beside you, I'm right there. And inevitably, you're searching for an idol, and you become that idol. That's what all idolatry is. That's what every other religion is, is men who have created God in their own image, and they begin to worship that God. Finally, what they've found is something that that suits them. This suits me. And that's what they were known for. That's what the whole Mars Hill thing was. The, the Sitting there on, on top of the mountain, they would all spout off and you could worship any kind of God you wanted. If you were a violent guy, you could worship the God of violence. If you were a, a sexual guy, you could worship the sexual goddess. You could do whatever you wanted to do. You just need to find the God that suits you. But he's always been very near. He's always been. And people have to shove him aside to get to their idol. He warns us about that. Tells, that's what James chapter 4 and verse 8 says that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's no, there's no searching. He's right there. He's, just, he's a prayer away. Any parent understands that. Any parent understands that about their kids. You just say it and I'm right there. I'm right there. You know. Anyway, he says, Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear him. It's kind of a, a lot of the commentators said this is the x-ray of our spiritual walk <laughs> or our spiritual self. He talks about the tongue and he talks about the mouth and he moves on to the feet and he takes a look at us completely from head to toe and says, you are at fault. You are at fault. He says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That is the true purpose of the law. The true purpose of the law was never to keep it to gain righteousness. Never was. It's interesting. As soon as we start talking about dietary law and God's word here at Calvary Chapel, as soon as we start talking about this and reading this, it's amazing how many conversations I've had, whether that's on Facebook or any other place with people, and it just it's just coming up. Like, I've had three this week, which is a lot to me. Three, three on the same subject. It's like, are you kidding me? I had no idea there were that many people in bondage to this stuff. I had no idea that it was that permeated in that many different sections of Christendom. Couldn't believe how many people still think these things. Are you even reading the same book? 
Or are you reading it from cover to cover? Are you just pulling out verses that line up with what suits you, you know? The law was intended to bring everybody under guilt, to make sure they needed the second option, that they knew that this wasn't going to work. See, Abraham, before the law, before any dietary laws and restrictions, I mean, what did you do? How did you get to heaven prior to Moses? All those people that died, all those people that lived, whatever happened to them, if they had no law to follow, if they had no law to keep, what happened to Abraham? What happened to Isaac? What happened to Jacob? Jacob didn't even have the law. His kids did generations later, but he never did. And all the other people that ever lived, whatever happened to them, even Adam. Adam wasn't sinless. Adam was innocent, but he wasn't sinless. He just said he, the Bible just describes him as someone who didn't know the difference between good and evil. It didn't mean that he wasn't guilty of those things. He just didn't know the difference. I think we misunderstand that sometimes. The law was written down. The, the law was put in word so that people were all brought under guilt. So that everybody was looking for the solution who was going to come. The law was written to point people to Christ. The law was a tutor, a teacher to bring people to the solution of their problem, their real problem, their sin nature, which was Jesus. The sins were codified and shown the sin nature that was already there in Abraham, in Isaac, and in Jacob. Likewise, when Christ came and died on the cross, he, he took away the sin of the world. That's why it doesn't say sins. The sins are simply the symptoms of the sin nature that needed to be dealt with. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's why there's only one thing you have to do to get into heaven now. There's not many things. There's no keeping of the law. There's no stopping of all these things and starting all these things. There's one thing you must do. That's why I said, what must I do to be saved? Believe on him whom he sent, because he took care of the sin of the world, the sin nature. He took care of it. So important, so simple, so clear. To me, maybe it isn't to everybody. I'm just reading this. I'm like, this is great. (laughs) What a relief. It's just so simple. It's so clear. We were creeps, and he's not, and he died instead of me, and now I believe on that, and I get to go to heaven. I am in Christ. You want to do a study that'll knock your legalistic doors off? Do a study on just those words, in Christ, and everything that applies to that. We have no, I, I have no idea. I've just started scratching the surface. I started doing that. I'm starting to look at this. I'm like, oh, you know how there's something you just can't leave alone? begin to scratch and you peel and you look at it and you're like, whoa. Being in Christ is unbelievably beneficial, to put it mildly. To be in Christ, I am now a new creation. I'm completely transformed. I'm a new creation. To be in Christ means that I was crucified with Christ on the cross. Not I, but my sin was. So all, I mean... Do a study on it. It's, it's unbelievable. I'll give you a hint. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. This is a good time to do a cross-reference. Galatians chapter 2. This is just a, a portion of it. And I don't know where I want you to start yet. I have 20 written down, but I'm pretty sure we need to go before that. Hold on.
Let's do a 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. There he is saying that again. Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I, myself, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That means I died. The death penalty has been inflicted upon me. The penalty that was due to me that I owed for all of my sins has been inflicted upon me because I was crucified with Christ. I don't know if we understand the depth of that. There is nothing waiting for me. There is no judgment waiting for me. There is no wrath. There is no death sentence waiting for me if I am in Christ because that's already taken place at the cross. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You are in Christ. I was crucified with Christ, Paul says, who knew the law better than anybody. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Because although it doesn't feel like I was crucified, I never felt the nails in my hands, I never felt the nails in my feet. By faith, by believing what God says about it, it's happened. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son, in, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That's the first little section of being in Christ. There's so many more. That's a great study. To realize the riches that you have in Christ. To understand the benefits, you know. It's like, it's like going to a new employer and, and, and reading the benefits package for the first time. You know, are you kidding me? Free health care? What? This is insane. A 401k that they contribute to? This is awesome. I don't even have to put, it's like more money than, I was just happy with the hourly rate. And it turns out that they're going to dump in another 5% into my account. Sweet. Even though that was coming. And it got, obviously it pales in comparison, but you look into that, what, it, what is all entailed in being in Christ. As a Christian, we don't even know what it means to inherit all things, but we do. All things? Yes, you inherit all things with Christ. As much as Christ is on the throne, we're on the throne. Can anybody get their mind around that? As much as Christ is going to judge the world, we judge the world with him. Saturn, I, I could get Saturn. Saturn's mine. And you can have Mars, or you can have Pluto, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other cool planets out there, and someone gets that planet out there that got demoted into some big ice dust ball or something out there. But it's ours. All of that is. It's exciting. It's freeing. It makes your heart leap with joy inside. Can it be true? Can that grace, can this mercy be as big as I think it is in my life? It can't be. It can't be. It's just too good to be true. And it makes you smile inside. And it makes you excited. And it makes your heart just burst with joy, doesn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Search it out. Study what it means to be in Christ and all the benefits that go along with that simple phrase. Paul is trying to take them there. And we're in chapter 3 is all. I'm excited for the rest of it. 
So now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. So you can't say that your righteousness is getting into heaven. You can't say that you're a good person. You can't say that your goods outweighed the bad. The law was written so that every mouth is stopped. There's no boasting anymore. You can't say that anymore. You have to stop saying, I'm a good person. I I deserve it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a tutor. It brings us to the place of guilt. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, we were for, uh, not warned, that's a wrong word to use, but we were foretold about this wonderful righteousness that God was going to give us through the law and the prophets. Even Adam and Eve were looking forward to this seed that was going to take place, that was prophesied in Genesis, the seed, Jesus, who was going to come. They were excited about it. They didn't know his name yet. They just knew that it was coming. The promise was in in force. It was going to happen someday. That's why he says that. The, The law and the prophets scream of the righteousness of God apart from the law given to us. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all Jew and Gentile is what he's getting at. Remember, that's his thought. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including you Jewish guys. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At any point in time, he could have jumped in before the cross and judged the world and been perfectly within his right to do so. At any time, he showed us that with Noah. At any time, he can jump in and do this. He chose to overlook all those sins because he knew Christ was coming. He knew that after Christ came, he could be the justifier and be just at the same time. He was going to do both. He looked forward to that, apparently. The way it's written, we're freely justified by his grace. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to get it. It's just, it's It's happened. The only thing that separates people from it is their disbelief, their unbelief. Just have to believe it. It's too good to be true. That's what the world thinks. It's just too good to be true. It's too easy. It's too simple. It can't be that simple. It is. It's happened. The cross happened. It's past tense. It's not happening. It's happened. And you are freely justified through that grace. Oh, this message needs to be shared. That's why it's good news. I don't... I mean, it just got a lot gooder, didn't it? The more we understand it, the gooder it gets. And the easier it is to share. I don't exactly know how to share the gospel. When you understand how good it is, it's super easy to share the gospel. It's super easy to share the gospel. Freely, 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 freely. It costs us nothing. God's grace is absolutely free. The redemption that we have in Christ is absolutely free. He simply did it because he loved us. He's done it. 
Yeah. Too many, hopefully we get it. I mean, you could go with the Coast Guard jumping in and saving the drowning person, the drowning person trying to pay the guy. No, no, no. I just did it because that's what I do. I'm a savior, you know. I don't know why the cop did that. I don't know why he stand. Why did my? Why did that guy jump on the grenade? I don't know why he did that. Can I pay you for that? Thank you, buddy. Can I give you anything for that? No, I did it because I care about you more than I care about myself. You know, what Christ has done on the cross is free, and it's to it's simply to be received with thanksgiving. That's, that's it. He doesn't even expect a thank you, but it should be received with thanksgiving. I mean, that goes without saying, right? Thanks for jumping on the grenade for me. Thank you. That's just something that just comes out of us, hopefully. Thanks for jumping out of the helicopter into this raging ocean to save me from my stupidity. I shouldn't have gone sailing today. Thank you. You know, it's just to be received with thanksgiving, but you can't buy it. You can't earn it. Well, it's about time you guys got here. Better you than me on that grenade. I have a much better life than you. No one would say that, you know, hopefully. Okay. Paul is really, I mean, their eyes are wide open right now, spiritually speaking, as the Romans are reading this letter, you know, and the Gentiles, remember last week, were kind of like, oh, wow, this is heavy. And the Jews are going, this is awkward. I thought we were better and separate. And now next week we're going to have to sit by him, you know, but he's bringing it together. He's bringing them together. There's unity in this. Unity and guilt. <laughs> unity and forgiveness at the same time. Equally forgiven. Equally guilty. So, he wants to be the justifier and the, and the just. The ju- be just and the justifier. Where is the boasting then? He says to his straw man that he's having this argument with. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. You want to follow a law? There you go. Follow the law of faith. What must I do to be saved? You must, by commandment of God, believe on this awesome son that I sent to die on the cross for your sins. You must believe that. You want to be a law keeper? Keep that law. It's almost funny, isn't it? You want to bless me on Father's Day? Then, I don't know, take this gift you know, and open it. Oh, Dad, do I have to? Yep, it's a brand new BB gun like you've always wanted. Oh, I don't know if I want this. You got to. It's my birthday. It's my Father's Day. You've got to open that gift and you've got to enjoy it. So there, you know, kind of thing. You want to keep a law? Keep that law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And this is where Martin Luther drops to his knees and gets saved. This is where he gets saved. We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Didn't need to even read chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and on. He just got saved, you know. Or... Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You can't, you can't have two gods, right? Because you said there's only one and true living God, right, Jews? Yeah, that's right. Well, then who's the God of the Gentiles? Well, I guess he is, they said reluctantly. 
Okay then. So everybody has to get saved the same way. There's one God, there's one way, there's one people, there's one race, the human race, and we're all saved the same way. Do we then make void the law through faith? Have we voided the law? Absolutely not. You have not voided the law. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And some take that the wrong way. They've been looking for that. This is way too much grace. This is way too much freedom. There it is. There it is. There it is. Establish the law. Back to the law. Oh, thank goodness. I thought he was going to do away with the law. I thought he was going to... No, no, no. It's not what he's saying. Follow the thought. We've got to follow the thought. What's he thinking? What's he trying to teach? The law was written to bring you to Christ. Now that you've come to Christ, you've established the truth of the law. The truth of the law was that you're guilty. The truth of the law was that you needed a solution. You believed on the solution. Therefore, you believe the problem. You've established the law. I just grinned from ear to ear as I was studying this tonight. I was like, oh, I'm so excited to read this and to teach this. And I'm done. I mean, I'm already done. I'm trying to think of something else to say, but what else can you say, right? What else needs to be said? What a blessing that we have a God who loves us with an everlasting love that nothing, including my sin, can separate me from that love to the point where no matter what I think of him, no matter what kind of enemy I am of his, he's still my father who loves me and died on the cross for my sins. It's a blessing. My only job now, my only responsibility now is to recognize his love for me and to receive the salvation that he's offered me. And I believe it. And if I'm going to keep a law, I keep the law of faith. I trust in Jesus for everything. He has died for my sin. He's died for the sins of my past, the sins of my present, the sins of my future. He's died for my sin. And there's nothing else that can improve upon that. There's nothing else that needs to be taken away because my sin was nailed to the cross, which includes all those symptoms of my sin. Those are my sins. They've all been nailed to the cross. So I can't boast. All I can do is preach it. And hopefully we'll get a chance to preach it this week in such a way that brings people to grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 3. We thank you for all of it. We thank you for Paul's heart, for his skill, being so uh, in tune with your Holy Spirit to write it in such a way that it's, this book has brought more people to you as it should, as it should. It's simply written for that purpose, to bring people to that place of grace, that free grace, that unmerited favor, that forgiveness, that monkey being thrust off of our back, that guilt and shame that we carried around with us up until Romans. And the truth of your son Jesus and what he's done. Thank you for that, God. I pray that you'd help us to understand this in such a way that we can bring all people to that, that we'd be such a light, so full of joy, so full of the understanding of the salvation we have in you, so full of grace, receiving it is what I mean. We've received so much grace, we've received so much mercy in our lives that we can't help but give it out to those around us, God, and declare it. I pray that so many people come to know you through our witness, Lord. Help us to be true witnesses, true light, true salt in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.